Hello and welcome back to another edition of the Dog and Duck Show. My name is Warren. I am the dog and with me, back with me again, is my co-host Mark. He is the duck. This is our first time being back together on the show since the epic showdown in Las Vegas. The dogs taking down the ducks for the second time in the season, third time in two years, 34 to 31. And uh, in that moment, claiming the status of infinite Pac-12 champion. So, Mark, uh, I know that stung a little bit, but uh, it's been a, a little over 10 days, I think. How are you doing, my friend? Oh, Warren. I Well, first of all, I want our listeners to know I did not dodge you in an attempt to record uh, last week. I was uh, you had to switch from our, our pre-designed time and then the time that you chose didn't work for me. You ended up roping in a couple of Huskies. I made myself available. But by that point, you had already uh, already recorded two episodes. Yeah. Uh, so I I was ready to face the music and I'm I'm ready to face the music today. Uh, it's been it's been a long couple weeks here for uh, for Oregon fans, but uh, it is but what to it be is. fair. You were sick, and I did say that on on the show. That's right. But I was I was also sick, and my wife thinks I was sick because I watched my team lose in in <laughs> fashion. But uh, well, we'll never know. <laughs> that well, there are some psychosomatic effects to severe sports fandom, so. I can definitely identify with that. Well, no, in all in all seriousness, though, um, it was a huge game. And, uh, you know, I was going into the Friday night game dealing with a lot of inner turmoil, wondering what my life was going to be like after Friday night if the Huskies were to lose and to watch the Ducks proceed to make their way into the college football playoffs. So I can only imagine that, um, you know, being on the other end of the, you know, of the loss, that there was a lot of pain and disappointment. So, you know, just give us a little bit of a, a, a postmortem on your experience watching that game as a Duck fan and, you know, maybe kind of the stages of grief that you went through following uh, the loss. You know, it's funny, Warren, there's a there's a weird way in which I think how well the Huskies played made the loss easier to digest. Yeah. Uh, like I, you know, as as this might not surprise you at all, but I certainly categorize every every Oregon loss and put it in its own category and, you know, think of what other losses it reminds me of and things like that. And Oregon's two previous losses to uh to Washington I would I would describe as coin flip losses it's like there's mm -hmm. any number of plays where if if something else happened the game totally shifts and those are the games that are the most heartbreaking they're the games that you think about the most afterwards because you 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 think about all 10 of those different moments and and just wonder what could have happened and and you know on a bigger scale that would be for Oregon that would be like losing the national title game to Auburn on a last second field goal in a game where there's yeah any number of things that I look back to and still think about you know all these years later mm -hmm. uh I don't think about Oregon losing to Ohio State in the national title game nearly the same amount and I don't think mm -hmm. about it in the same way uh because Ohio State was just the better team in that particular 
game. And I think Washington was so thoroughly the better team on that Friday night in Las Vegas that it was easier to just kind of tip my cap and say, you know what? Like Washington played, I think the best game that they've played in the Kalen DeBoer era, I think considering Mm -hmm. the stakes and the opponent and, and how well they played both sides of the ball, how well they played at the line of scrimmage. uh, I just thought, I thought they played a marvelous game and I didn't necessarily think, uh, Oregon just like laid an egg. I mean, certainly it's, it looked like that's the direction it was going in the early on, but I think to fight back, to have the lead going into the fourth quarter, to um, not have like any really like just dumb mistakes. I mean, they only committed mm-hmm. two penalties all game. They converted both their fourth downs. Like, like I, I didn't feel like Oregon self-destructed. I, I felt like Washington took the game from them because they out-executed them. And in a weird way, that those are the easiest losses for me to accept because sometimes your team, even if they're a really good team, might just run into a little bit better team. And certainly right. that Friday night, Washington was better. And so I, I have to tip my cap to them. They they played a fantastic game. No, I agree. I mean, I, I think for a lot of Husky fans that lived through the, the 12 years of losing to Oregon, you know, there were certain games where it was just clear we are outmatched by this Oregon team. So you just kind of shrug your shoulders and and move on. The tough ones are the ones that, you know, you miss on a last second field goal or, you know, like those two, those two Oregon games that we lost in between, um, you know, the you know Chris Peterson's two wins and then the following Cristobal uh, losses, I think those were more painful because they were so close and because we felt like we could have, aka should have won those two games as well. And it's interesting, I you know, there were so many things about our podcast the week before that was discussed um, that really kind of bore itself out in some interesting ways. And one of the, those things was the question of with the fact that the Huskies had not been able to put together a complete game for the previous seven weeks, was that a sign that they were incapable of doing that or were they due to have a game where they put it all together? And, you know, I said to, to JJ and a couple other folks that Friday morning leading into the game, I said, man, I would just be so happy if the Huskies started this game off kind of like the Seattle Seahawks did against the Denver Broncos in the Super Bowl, where yeah. just for the first 15 or 20 minutes, everything goes their way. And yeah. it's just this massive surge of belief and momentum and excitement. And that's exactly what ended up happening. Now, you know, we could go kind of go through and, and break down, you know, drive by drive. And there were a couple of things that maybe if the Huskies had completed a pass to Jalen McMillan, you know, broken the game open even further, maybe if, uh, you know, a a questionable pass interference call was not made against Jabbar Muhammad, maybe they go into halftime 20 to three or 20 to six instead of 20 to 10. But all in all, uh, I think every Husky fan was absolutely thrilled with the first, you know, 27 minutes 
of the game. And then, like you said, they did enough at the end to 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 take control of the game and to win it and to 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 leave the fate of the the game in their own hands, which I think that's really what you're talking about. It's just at, at, for the entirety of the game, really, the Huskies kind of had the game in their hands. Yeah, even when Oregon made that rally, it felt to me as an Oregon fan like it's a little bit smoke and mirrors here. You know, it's a little bit of yeah, they get a they get a really favorable pass interference penalty. They have to convert a couple fourth downs. They have to get that long run from Bo Nix. They had to take advantage of of the middle eight to get the two possessions in a row, you know, like which really worked out to their favor. But it, it felt like a little bit of smoke and mirrors because what was evident even as they were making those drives is they still didn't have any sort of interior running game that they could count on consistently, which I think was the biggest surprise, right? Yeah, because for sure. In the, in the last two meetings, Oregon has run roughshod over Washington's defense. And as I as I thought about the game afterwards, Warren, I think one of the biggest things is one, Washington is tackling just so much better than they were right. six And I if if you looked at kind of when Oregon was giving the ball to Bucky Irving, what made him so effective in the first two meetings was how rarely he went down on first contact. He would oftentimes mm-hmm. break tackles in the backfield and and get five or six yards. Like that just wasn't happening. The guy that was having some success was Jordan James. When they went to him, he seemed to just kind of hit the hole with a little more authority and would get some positive momentum. Uh, but there were so few possessions. It was like Oregon made that comeback to get back into the game. Uh, they get the ball back after a pick, and Nix immediately throws that that interception to the guy that was standing out of bounds when he released the ball. You know, that was a weird play. Uh, then Oregon gets the ball back and I think they went like a three and out and then they basically like didn't get the ball back until the game was almost in hand and it was just Oregon just never had a chance to really settle in and and feel like they were able to kind of make it their game and a lot of that credit is just to the Washington especially the Washington defense I didn't think the I knew the Washington defense was improved I didn't think they were capable of that kind of dominant performance against Oregon's running attack no doubt and and what's interesting is that um it it kind of took a little bit of everybody to to pull off that result uh Tule Latula Gasanoa our big run stuffing defensive tackle he was able to make I would say three or four critical plays where he either stopped them at the line of scrimmage or even behind the line of scrimmage um the the he Eddie didn't, he didn't play in the in the uh meeting in October, right? Right. And he has just in the last couple of weeks really been rounding into health and conditioning. Like he only played uh something like 30 snaps, 25 snaps against Oregon State, and then he only played eight against Washington State. Yeah. Um so that was his best game, maybe of his career as a Husky. And then Eddie Ufoshio making that tackle on Bucky Irving where Bucky juked him out of his shoes and Eddie fell to the ground. And then while Eddie was still on his knees, he reached out and tackled Bucky for a two yard gain 
instead of what could have been, you know, a nine or 10 yard first down. Yeah. That was critical. Uh, that tackle, I believe it was on third and nine. It looked like Bo Nix had an open lane to run about 20 yards. Yeah. And Braylon Trice came off of uh, an offensive tackle to reach out and pull uh, Nix down for, you know, no gain and force the the punt. Um, those were, it just seemed like those were the plays that the Huskies were able to make on that Friday night game that they had been unable to make for the most part in either of the previous two games. And that really did seem to be the difference. And, and, and not to mention, you know, uh, two players that have been out for most of the season, Asa Turner and Cameron Fabiculinen. Uh Cam Fabiculinen had like two or three epic open field tackles in the first half. Yeah. that really uh, shut down Oregon and forced them to, you know, uh, have to punt or in, in third and long, in third and long situations. And again, those were just plays that the Huskies have not been making the last two years under DeBoer um, or really under William Inge and Chuck Morrell. And so to see that progress, and I think obviously if, if we look ahead to, the Huskies' chances against a very explosive Texas team, they're going to need that kind of tackling in order to be able to to slow that team down. But it's going back to what you originally said, the Huskies were playing their best ball when it mattered the most. And there's no doubt, let's be honest, they were pretty motivated by all the disrespect that had come their way by – you know, the the 9.5 underdog status and uh, all of the prog- prognosticators picking Oregon to go to the CFP. At one point, I think it was like the week before uh, the Oregon-Washington game, ESPN had some sort of percentage of teams making the college ball playoffs, and Oregon was like 85% and Washington was 1%. You know, I mean, it's just like... Yeah. I don't know. I don't know about that. I don't know. <laughs> that doesn't seem quite accurate. <laughs> there was there was a lot of bulletin board material put sure. it that way, and I think those guys really did take it personally. Well, and I think, yeah, that's I I totally appreciate that on the Husky side of it, and I also would say to the Huskies like. You gave us no reason over the last six weeks to think that you were capable of this. Like, give us give us the benefit of the doubt here. Like, I don't I don't think anyone on the Oregon side, like it, in terms of the fan base, was like actively trying to like be dismissive of Washington. I think any sort of confidence that Oregon fans had going into it was kind of like, am I am I seeing this correctly? Like, like we're we're blowing everybody out and they're barely surviving and like they don't look the same. Mm-hmm. And we seem like we're playing pretty well, but I don't know that anybody was really like totally comfortable in that. And I think I, you know, I, I said kind of Oregon wins convincingly as my prediction, but I basically said that because I said, I want no part of Washington in, in the fourth quarter. I want yeah. no part of a close game. This team just kind of has a poise and, and they'll figure it out if it gets down to crunch time. So, yeah, I mean, I, I can totally understand how the Washington players felt this sense of motivation about being the underdog 
And it's also like if this version of Washington had shown up for the six weeks prior, they wouldn't have been the underdog because they would have been right. throttling right. the teams on their schedule instead of instead of just surviving. Like they they channeled the best version of themselves at, at the perfect time. Absolutely. And and Mark, you mentioned something that I wanted to touch base on because I, I just have found it interesting. And uh it's the the topic of the middle eight. And I honestly, Mark, I had never heard that expression until the beginning of last season. And uh, I heard Coach DeBoer talking about, hey, we want to win the middle eight. And, you know, I had to kind of figure out what that meant. And then I think it was like a week or so later, you know, you brought it up on a podcast where you said, you know, Dan Lanning is a really big believer in the middle eight, winning the middle eight. And I thought, okay, this is interesting. I've you know, I've never heard of this before. And now two coaches are both talking about this being really important. And I would be interested. I haven't, I honestly haven't gone back and done the research, but my, uh, my recollection leads me to believe that in all three of these last matchups against between Washington and Oregon, Oregon has won the middle eight in all three games. Uh, you know, because, I'm almost 100% certain they did it last year, that Oregon did it last year. And then if you go back to the October 14th game, um, you know, I believe the 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 Ducks won the middle eight in that game, didn't they? Oh, no, because if you think about the October game, the Ducks had the ball in the goal line, didn't score on fourth down going into the half. We all said they should have taken the points. Then Oregon got the ball first in the second half and had a three and out and punted. Mm. And, and then fell behind, you know, even further. So, so Washington won it in in on in October, and then Oregon won it last year in this most recent one. Yeah, and I I would have to go back and look. I don't remember last year, like how decisive this was. The game where it felt like the middle yeah. kept them in the game, like it because yeah. they they took it from twenty to three to twenty to seventeen without Washington getting the ball. And then immediately got, you know, a stop again to, you know, get the ball back. So um, this this I felt like was the game where it did the most for Oregon's chances. But like I said, it still felt like the middle eight was like the fact that they're stealing a possession is just kind of covering up some, some of the underlying realities of this game, which is that Washington has has Oregon's number and Oregon doesn't have Washington's number is how Dan Lanning put it in his post game. Okay. I didn't hear his post game, but he, he acknowledged that Washington has Oregon's number. Well, he, he acknowledged it in that, in this particular game, you know, it was just kind of a giving credit where credit is due. And he said they had, they had our number and we didn't have theirs. And I, I, I mean, that that's certainly the way that it felt like if you think about the first couple possessions that Oregon had, where it was, they're running plays, that have been successful all season, you know, like at one point, Bo Nix throws a, a slant to Troy Franklin, which has just been like an automatic first down virtually all season. And, and Washington jumps the route and knocks the pass away. And it was just kind of like, like Washington has just, they're dialed into exactly what, I mean, it felt like Connor Stallions was on the sidelines for Washington. <laughs> like they were just so dialed in right to, to what um, Oregon wanted to do. And um, and then conversely, 
you know, when Washington had the ball in that first half, it just felt like Oregon's defenders were on roller skates. Like it just anything that Washington wanted in those first few drives and Oregon had very few answers. Uh, They figured it out a little bit in the second half, but then couldn't get the stop that they needed when they needed one. Yeah. And, you know, when you talked about, Hey, we, we couldn't have expected this game to go the way it did based on the way the Huskies had been playing for the previous six weeks. Obviously we've already talked about how, you know, the improvement in the tackling and, and the, the defense has really, you know, been remarkable over these last few weeks, but going back to the offense, you know, the return of Jalen McMillan, I think was, it was bigger than, than even what Huskies gave it credit for. I think a lot of Huskies, knew that Jalen McMillan was really good and that not having him was, was not ideal, but yeah, seeing him fully back into the, you know, the game plan and the way that he was able to both, you know, get those critical third downs to keep the chains moving, but also to stretch the field is a really unique, you know, skill set that he brings and then that making Jalen Polk kind of the third receiver, um, it just felt like, oh man, this is an entirely different team. And then let's give it up for Dylan Johnson. I mean, yeah. this is a guy that, you know, was well-documented when he came from Mississippi State. Uh, the final assessment by his previous head coach was that he was soft um, he came in really more as a guy that was known as a uh, a pass catcher in the the Mike Leach you know you know system, and yet over the last six or seven games he has morphed into just a a dominant battering ram, tough runner who's able to to hit the holes and to push forward for extra yards on every carry. And it just seemed like every time he got hit, he would take another step forward and then fall forward an additional three yards after that. And yeah. so instead of getting three or four yards, it, I, I was amazed how many times his runs finished for seven yards. And then yeah. it was second and three. And now Michael Penix kind of has the opportunity to do whatever he wants to do. And yeah. not worry about putting himself in a third and long type of scenario. Yeah, he he was incredible. I mean, it was really a heroic performance. I thought he was. They gave Penix the MVP, right? But I think I thought Dylan Johnson was pretty clearly the. Uh, I agree. The, um, and you know, on the Oregon side, it's by far the most that anybody ran against them all year. And and I think the perplexing thing. For Oregon fans is, you know, the week prior, Oregon plays Oregon State, who ran all over them last year. And it was a real source of, like, motivation of, like, that's not going to happen again this year. And they completely shut down Oregon State's running game, held Damian Martinez to, like, 30-some yards or something like that. And coming into the Washington game the following week, a lot of the talk amongst Oregon was, well, you know, Dylan Johnson ran for 100 yards against us earlier this year. Like, we can't let him do that again. And I actually thought, like, well, we've seen what this team, like, 
how they can adjust and like shut down a really good running attack. So I, I actually thought like, okay, like Dylan Johnson's a good running back, but like, we're just going to have a better game plan against them. And it was totally the opposite. It was whatever, whatever Washington had done in the first game, they compounded mm. that. Yeah. Um, it was even more effective. And, uh, and that was, like I said, it was just perplexing because that's something that nobody else has, has been able to do against Oregon this year. And, and Dylan Johnson has the two best games that any running back had against them. Really? So the two best games that a running back had against Oregon this year was the October 14th, hundred yards. And then this 152 yard performance. Well, they're the, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm, I'm, I'm checking uh, because Texas tech. So it was Tyler Shuck, who was the quarterback and he ran for over hundred yards. So those are the only three guys to run for okay. over hundred yards. It was Dylan Johnson twice. Yeah. Quarterback for Texas tech. And this, wow. this game wasn't just a hundred. It was what? 152 yards. Yeah. 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 So I was going to save this for later, but I think it ties in well to what we're talking about, but um, you know, as the Huskies prepare for Texas on January 1st, again, the prognost- prognosticators are, are talking. Uh, Booger McFarland said he believes that UW is the fourth best team in the college football playoffs. Uh, he, he describes their style of play as basketball on grass. And he said he doesn't know if they can play big boy football. And the reason why I bring it up to you, Mark, is because I feel like not only is that an insult to Washington, but it's really an insult to Oregon and to the entire Pac-12. You know, do you think that what the Huskies displayed against Oregon uh, should should qualify as being big boy football and I mean, wouldn't you argue that Oregon also plays big boy football? Yeah, I I would. Um, gosh, so many different directions to go with that. I think, uh, first of all, I don't trust Booger McFarland to say much of anything intelligent. His name is Booger, after all. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I would say this. I would say that um, Oregon at their best uh, – in the past 10 or 12 years with the explosive offenses that they've had has always had really good offensive lines, but oftentimes like when they lost their biggest games, whether it was losing twice in the national title game, whether it was losing, you know, a couple times to Stanford when Stanford was really mm. had Oregon's number uh, they lost because they, they couldn't hold up at the line of scrimmage against the biggest, most athletic teams that they faced. Yeah, there was just kind of like a sliver where it was against 98% of the teams in the country. They had a clear edge. And then there was that certain certain type of team that if they matched up against them, um, they were they were it was a a checkmate. Yeah. Yeah. And so. So that's that's the only reason why I, I hesitate here to say, like, I I think we'll know early on whether it's whether it's against Texas or if they're lucky enough to or fortunate enough to beat Texas and then I'm playing Michigan or Alabama who I think is probably even more sturdy up front than Texas uh I think we'll know early on is we'll be like oh 
oh yeah, this this actually is a different caliber than even when they played Oregon. Um, or we'll say, hey, they're holding their own. And yeah. um, because I think that's all they have to do. They don't have to like dominate the line of scrimmage. I think they have to hold their own because they are going to have the best quarterback on the field, regardless mm-hmm. of who they're playing. And they're going to have the best group of receivers on the field. Right. That that makes up for a lot, you know? And um, so I... You know, and I mean, I go back to last year, the Huskies played the University of Texas in the Alamo Bowl. And, you know, Texas obviously was a good team, but not a great team last year. But I remember heading into the game, seeing a... a you know, kind of a, a list of the top 10 defensive tackles in college football last year. And Texas had two guys in that top 10 list that played in the game. And the Huskies ran the ball really. It was a very similar game to the game against Oregon on Friday night where Michael Penix did what he did, but it wasn't really a a, a passing game. It was really a much more balanced running game. Wayne Talapapa had over a hundred yards rushing. Um, Rich Newton had over 50 yards rushing. So to me, um, it seems like there's just a lot of ignorance about what teams are doing on the West coast. And um, you know, the idea that, that, I mean, let's be honest, like coach Cristobal came in to Oregon touting that we are going to be the, Alabama or the SEC team of the West Coast. And he really built the Oregon roster with that philosophy. Yeah. He went out, they get Dan Lanning, who was the you know defensive coordinator for the University of Georgia. He's not, he has not veered away from that same mentality. They're they're pushing uh, you know, big boy football at the University of Oregon. So it's just interesting to me that um you have two teams that I think have really said, Hey, we're going to, we're going to try to build a strong team that can go against these, you know, sec or big 10 teams. Uh, But you know, the, the notions that it's a a basketball on grass continue to persist. Yeah. There's certainly some kind of anti West coast bias in there. And uh, I think about like when Oregon played, Georgia in their season opener last year and and got smoked in that game. Uh, If you ask Lanning, uh, they brought this up in one of the Oregon broadcasts this year. Joel Klatt and Gus Johnson brought this up is that they asked Lanning. uh, So when you played Georgia last year, was it just that Georgia was just too strong? They were just too big and strong. And Lanning said, no, no, I felt like we were strong enough they were just too fast. They were, it was the, it was the lateral quickness sideline to sideline where Oregon seemed to get exposed. And I remember that's the feeling that I had watching it where I was kind of surprised, even as Oregon's getting, you know, handled is, well, gosh, but like we're holding up pretty well at the line. Like, um, but it's, it was our, our linebackers versus their receivers, you know, uh, their receivers versus our, uh, are anyway you, you get the point you know it was yeah. it was in that in that kind of inter, intermediate space where they just really exposed us so um it 
I don't know. I, I don't really worry about Texas having like an overwhelming physical advantage just because we've seen Washington play Texas with relatively similar rosters. Yeah. At the end of last season. And I, I don't think that, that Texas is like fundamentally a different team in a way that like would make that a more significant matchup. I think if, if you're going to see Washington somehow really get exposed in the way that Booger is talking about, it would probably be against somebody like Michigan who's capable of like what they didn't, they didn't throw a single pass in the second half against Penn state. Like that's how, that's how much they trusted their running game against their really good Penn state defense is they just hammered the ball over and over and over again and just bled that game. And so uh, I think the only way you're going to know how a team like Washington fares against a team like Michigan is for them to play each other. And until then it's all speculation. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I just think when you look at like the, the Huskies depth chart, uh, I'm trying to pull this up so I get the accurate numbers, but um, you know, go back to 2016 Washington Huskies finish uh, number four. They win the pack 12 against Colorado they make their way into the college football playoffs. They're playing an Alabama team that many at that time were saying was one of the most talented college football rosters of all time. Yeah. Um, I mean, some of the guys that are that were on that team are uh, you know, NFL all pros today. Yeah. But their their starting guard was a true freshman um in um oh gosh why am i blanking on his name uh nick harris he was a true freshman who was six foot two and 270 pounds yeah i was the starting guard in 2016 yeah. and uh he played admirably but uh they they took advantage of you know the inside of the washington offensive line and Jake Browning was was under duress for most of the game. And then Bo Scarborough and and that big offensive line eventually had its way in the second half against Washington. But if you look at this team uh, in the center of this offensive line, you've got Nate Kalepo, who is six foot six, 327 pounds at left guard. And yeah. then you've got uh um, you've got Julius Bulow, who is uh, a right guard, he's six foot eight, 311 pounds. Yeah. So you've got some serious beef right in the middle of the field. And, and those guys have basically been able to now play together, uh, for most of the season. And it seemed like, you know, against Oregon, that, you know, that size and that, um, you know, synergy that they had together was really, really powerful. So I, I just, I just think that, you know, this is a great opportunity for the PAC 12 um, and will really the, the former PAC 12 teams final to, opportunity for the PAC 12 to, to come in and to say, Hey, West coast football is legit. And, you know, we're we're much more than just finesse and skill. We've got some real power behind us as well. Um, so, you know, just as we kind of transition away from that game and 
look a little bit at where we are now and where we're going. Um, lots of good stuff for both the dogs and the ducks in the postseason. I'll let you highlight some of the ducks uh, accolades, but the Huskies are now number two in the nation in the college football playoffs facing uh, Texas in, on January 1st in the Sugar Bowl. Uh, Michael Penix wins the Maxwell Award, comes in a close second to Jaden Daniels in the Heisman. Roma Dunze, I think, was completely uh, snubbed in the Bolitnikoff. Absolutely should have won that. Uh, UW has five players on the AP All-American first, second, and third team. And uh, it feels like in many ways, this is kind of a perfect mix for Washington in terms of recognition and disrespect. Um, there's enough recognition, you know, Coach DeBoer wins the National Coach of the Year. Uh, there's enough recognition to be able to point and say, hey, this is a program that is doing things right. It's on the rise. Um, it's been very successful. And yet enough snubs and enough disrespect that I think these guys are going to go into the football play college football playoffs feeling like they have a lot to prove um, against Texas and whoever they face in the championship if they win. So um, just kind of an, an, uh, an interesting dynamic as we head towards January 1st. In addition to that, the University of Washington basketball team claims its first victory over Gonzaga um in 15 years beating number seven gonzaga and uh how about jake browning the yeah the best quarterback in the nfl the last two weeks and uh really at performing admirably for the cincinnati Bengals with the injury to joe burrow um happy for him he's making some serious money for his future i would believe right now uh yeah. but uh, really good stuff. It's a good time to to be a dog right now. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, the Cincinnati Bengals are only allowed to have quarterbacks with the initials JB. JB, yeah. Go with Browning, and he's he's come through. Yeah, who knew? Absolutely. And uh, and this is fun. The this past weekend, uh, backup Jake Browning goes up against uh the indianapolis colts and backup gardner Minshew. oh there you go a rematch of the apple cup and once again uh browning comes out on top and so browning can continue to say along with his friend miles gaskin i ain't ever lost to no coog so uh that's that's a lot of fun oh that's a heartwarming heartwarming I have to I have to admit though that um I think Gardner Minshew might be my all-time favorite cougar. I I absolutely love that guy. Yeah, his his critical acclaim is pretty universal. I think most people love him and uh he seems like the most likable backup quarterback in the NFL. It's like every, yeah. he's like the guy that every team wants as their backup, which is just because it seems like if you're gonna throw him in for six weeks. He's going to keep your team afloat and has a little bit of swagger doing it. So I think I think most people like Gardner. Yeah, I've always said that he's kind of like a poor man's Baker Mayfield, but um, I I think he's he's got he's got something about his charisma that just really wins over whoever whoever you know is on his team, and so that's that's fun to watch. But um, 
Give us an update on what's what's happening in uh, Duck World these days. Yeah, just a couple of news and notes, uh, kind of season-ending awards. So also on the um, on the All American teams, Jackson Powers Johnson, uh, Oregon Center was first team All American and the first ever Pac-12 Center to win the Remington Award, which mm-hmm. goes to the Nation Center. So great job, JPJ. Uh, and he's declared for the draft, I saw. And he is declared for the draft, as has Bucky Irving, as has cornerback uh, Kyrie Jackson. I would assume that uh, Troy Franklin, who was named second-team All-American as a receiver, I would assume that um, his announcement is forthcoming, but I haven't yeah. haven't seen anything from him yet. Uh, and then uh, Bo Nix took home some hardware. I know you and Mike Martin were really pleased that he was named the Pac-12 Offensive Player of the Year and thought that was really well-deserved. And so I uh, just wanted to shout that out again. And then he was also uh, took home the William Campbell Trophy, which uh, is kind of considered the academic Heisman. It's given to the college mm-hmm. football player with the best combination of academic success, athletic performance, and exemplary leadership. So pretty mm-hmm. cool award for him to cap off his time at Oregon. And, uh, and I think the biggest news with Bo Nix is that he, uh, as soon as Oregon's uh, bowl game with the Liberty flames uh, was announced uh, the day that that announcement came through, uh, Dan Lanning said to reporters that Bo Nix had already told him that he was committed to playing. So uh, he wants to, he wants to go out uh, with a win. He wants to go out with his teammates, uh, which is honorable. He certainly doesn't have to do yeah. that. Um, look forward to seeing him suit up for the Ducks one more time. Some of these other guys that have declared for the draft, have they stated their intention to play or not? So my my assumption is, is that the guys who have declared for the draft are then not going to play in the bowl game, that, that that's part of – part of that declaration means that is that kind of the new you know the new way is just by declaring for the draft you're saying you're not playing well because i think usually when you declare for the draft you sign up you sign with an agent and now i know some of this is different within the nil sphere as far as what you can or can't do but um yeah i don't know about that because i mean you know take for instance uh troy fiotano who uh also an all-american he has already agreed to go to the senior bowl or the Hawaiian. Yeah. The Hawaiian senior bowl and also declare for the draft, but he's absolutely playing sure. in the yeah. bowl game. Uh, yeah. I, so I, I, no, I do I, feel like they probably have to make some sort of announcement whether or not they're playing. Yeah. My, I mean the, the farewell posts that these guys all made on social media and, and the, the post that Dan Lanning, you know, made about them, go be great. It was an honor to be your coach type of stuff like that. Yeah. You know, it just get, okay. it gives me the impression that with those three in particular, that their, their time at Oregon is, is done. So I, I don't know if that's why Troy Franklin hasn't yet gone public. If, if maybe, maybe he wants to play in the bowl game and he has, he hasn't decided that he wants to call it quits yet. I don't know. Okay. So. Yeah. That makes sense. And, um, I saw that uh, Ty Thompson has entered the portal as well as Husky backup quarterback, Dylan Morris, who, uh, you know, declared for the portal 
a year after decorated five-star Sam Heward declared for the portal. So uh, both teams kind of needing to reload. Two guys, I think, that saw the writing on the wall and saw that their coaching staffs weren't fully committed to naming them the starter next season. And so Oregon has already uh, received a commitment from Oklahoma's Dylan Gabriel, who will be entering his senior year. And I think reasonable minds would say is one of the top, you know, three or four returning quarterbacks in the country. Uh, when you take out all the guys that are, you know, the Penixes and the Knicks and the Caleb Williams that won't be here next year. I think Dylan Gabriel was on that short list of, of best quarterbacks in the country for next season. And he is already announced that he's transferring to Oregon. And I know Washington is, is in the mix for some, some potential transfer targets as well. No, absolutely. And hopefully we'll be able to cover that in the next week or two. But um, yeah, it's it's an interesting world that we're living in because it's like Ty Thompson, my understanding is that he, he played pretty well when he was given opportunity this year. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, obviously you don't turn down a potential Heisman winner in Dylan Gabriel, but it is a unique place to be in. I think when you're managing a roster these days where you've got a five-star who still has multiple years of eligibility left and has performed well with the opportunities given to him. And ultimately you say, no, we're going to go with the guy that has, is a proven winner. I mean, again, I'm not critiquing it. I'm just saying, Like that's, it's just a, a, a weird reality. And then it's like, okay, so this guy's like, I've been sitting on the bench doing everything I'm supposed to do for the last two or three years. And I guess I just need to go elsewhere. Um, and then where does he go? You know, does he go to another elite program or does he end up kind of doing something like uh, Sam Heward and having to kind of drop down a level or two uh, in order to get that playing time? Yeah, it'll be interesting. I mean, uh, I know some people threw out, well, does he end up uh, going to Miami because Mario Cristobal recruited him to Oregon? Does he end up going to Arizona State because Kenny Dillingham has some familiarity with him Mm. and he's a more stable quarterback? Does he end up dropping down to, does he go to Oregon State, Uh, you know, who would now be looking for a quarterback with DJU and Aiden Childs both hitting the portal? Uh, Does he drop down to another Mountain West type school fresno state or boise state or some someplace like that uh i'm i'm rooting for ty thompson i think he's just kind of unfortunately it's kind of uh part of roster construction in the 21st century is that a guy like ty thompson um who 10 years ago would just be the incumbent starter and everybody would know that it was his job um and everybody would be behind that and that's not the world that we live in anymore. And I think if you're the Oregon coaching staff, you're looking at it and you're, you're saying, Hey, maybe Ty Thompson, if everything works out is like an eight out of 10 for us, but like Dylan Gabriel seems like a pretty sure nine or nine and a half. And so like, you know, um, and I think the success of not just Nick's, but Michael Penix, Caleb Williams, Mm -hmm. Jaden Daniels, like it's there's certainly uh, a track record now 
of transfer quarterbacks who can play, like you said, at a Heisman caliber level, all American caliber level, like those guys can completely lift the team's fortunes. And so if you're a school like Oregon and you feel like, Hey, we have, we still have some pretty good pieces. We, we think we could be a, a pretty good team next year and you have a chance to bring in one of those landmark names. You just, you just have to do it. No, absolutely. And, and it definitely changes the way that, teams can stay great for an extended amount of time. Cause like you said, the natural progression of things historically has been, okay, we've got this great, you know, quarterback, or we've got this great defensive player and he gets better over, you know, the years in his senior year, you know, he puts it all together and we have a phenomenal season. And then it's like, okay, now we got to bring in the new guy and, He's not going to be as good as the senior was, but yeah. we got to let him develop. And then maybe a year or two down the road, we're back to where we were. And I think now the mindset is like, no, we've got, we've got a guy that finished number three in the Heisman race. And we need to go out and find somebody who's going to finish in New York city in the Heisman race again next year. And who's already got everything like the resume is already prepared yeah the fact that like teams can do that now and not every team can do it but certain teams can do it is pretty remarkable and uh i think it's it's a huge benefit for the teams like oregon that have the funds to be able to to bring in players like that well so here's here's now kind of the interesting subplot that that is a potential unfolding for Oregon is you also have Dante Moore who just finished his freshman season at UCLA and Mm. struggled pretty mightily uh, seemed to have some sort of a falling out with, with Chip Kelly. And it was, uh, you know, that was documented by a family member or something who really is unkind things to say about Chip. Uh, So Dante Moore is out there on the transfer market. Uh, Oregon originally had him committed. He decommitted from Oregon uh, after Kenny Dillingham left. And so he's had Oregon on his radar before. He's also a Michigan kid. So Michigan is surely one of those teams on his radar. But the rumors circulating around Dante Moore is that he is in a position now where he can see the wisdom of going to an elite institution and sitting for a year behind an experienced quarterback that he really does need to take some time to, to learn and grow and develop on his own. And would he, now this is all kind of rumor at this point, so who knows, but like, would he be interested in going to Oregon and sitting behind Dylan Gabriel? Would he be interested in going to Michigan and sitting behind JJ McCarthy? Mm -hmm. Those seem like uh, if, if that's the route that he wants to take and he's not necessarily looking for a place to play right away, it would seem like those are the two destinations that are most likely to um, to land him. Uh, so that would be an interesting approach for Oregon because then they're using the transfer portal to get the re- immediate replacement for Bo Nix, but they're also making more of a long-term play in trying to lock up a guy that they think they could hand the reins over to uh, in another year. So, uh We'll we'll see, you know, in the weeks to come where Dante Moore ends up landing and if if that's how it all plays out. 
Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't it wouldn't shock me if that's the way it turned out. It's just it, it, there's a little bit of a humorous irony to the fact that Ty Thompson was a five star who was very confident that he could come in and, you know, win the starting position and then ultimately realized that that door was closing on him. You know, the idea that someone like Dante Moore would come in and believe that Oregon would would say after this year with Dylan Gabriel, okay, the, here are the keys to the car, instead of going out and getting the next bonus or Dylan yeah. Gabriel. Right. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of trust there because right. it it almost seems like to me, and I've heard a couple other people say this, and I think there's some truth to it. But it almost seems like to me the best thing that a, a young guy like Dante Moore can do is go play on a, a team that's got a great offensive scheme somewhere in a smaller system and just kill it. And then he can be the Dylan Gabriel that comes in having proven that he can run the system that you know Oregon wants him to run. But right. sitting on the bench developing doesn't seem to be the 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 route anymore for a lot of these players so i mean if oregon gets them and they convince them that that that's the way to go then you know good for him but uh i'm i'm becoming more and more of the mind that if you're a really talented young player you know you you may be better off going to a smaller school and getting that experience and building that resume and then transferring in and getting the big NIL deal uh, at the school that you really want to go instead of what we're seeing with some of these guys, which is vice versa. They yeah. go to the big school and they sit and then they end up le leaving because they, they don't see any time to, to start. Right. Right. Yeah. It's a, I mean, it's a, it's a totally different world. And um, like I saw that what Kyle McCord is transferring from Ohio state after going 11 and one as a starter in his first year as a starter, and he's out the door. It's like, what, I mean, do you know anything about what's behind that? Like where else is he going to go? Is this the coaching staff saying, Hey, you're just not good enough. You're not going to be our starting that, quarterback. That's kind of my, my guess is that the coaching staff, made it clear that, you know, there's rumors that they're going to be in the mix for Cam Ward. And so if the coaching staff is kind of looking at it saying, we have, we need a different caliber of player at this position. Uh, we're going to go after someone else. And that's somehow communicated to Kyle McCord. Then you can understand him going, okay, then I'm going to go elsewhere as well. So. Yeah. And I mean, the Huskies are also vying for Cam Ward. And so. I don't want to be disparaging towards Cam Ward um, because I think he's extremely talented and in the right system, he may really thrive. Right. But when you're talking about, like I said, like you said, a, a quarterback that's a five star who's already been in the system and went 11 and one. Yeah. Um, do you really want to roll the dice on a quarterback that has never been a part of your system, knows nothing about your culture and couldn't even lead his team to a bowl game this year. I mean, that's that that's a pretty big gamble. That you know, Cam Ward is not kind of you know 
coming from the same type of scenario that Dylan Gabriel is coming. Right. right. Yeah. And Ohio State is a place where like they've got a history of, you know, CJ Stroud and Dwayne Haskins and mm-hmm. these these quarterbacks that had unbelievable seasons. And it's yeah. like as good as Cam Ward is, like, is he really gonna go there and become like this guy that you know, throws 45 touchdowns to four interceptions, like, which is what they're used to there. Like, it just seems like the expectations placed on that position at that school might not be something you want to sign up for. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you know, both these programs had a lot of high expectations going into this season. I would say, that when you're re- when you really stop to to look at it, obviously the Huskies, you know, ended up on top 13 and 0. But this is an Oregon team that won every game of the season except for against the 13 and 0 team. Um, you know, if you're going if if these teams were going to lose, which they had to because they faced each other twice, um, you know, that they, they they could not have performed at a, a higher level in their conference than they did end up performing. Yeah, obviously the, I mean, the duck fan in me wishes that there was a split in the outcome of those two meetings, but, um, but to have a pair of three point losses yeah. to undefeated team that's currently ranked second in the nation is um, that's not the worst outcome. Like uh, I think, I mean, this Oregon team is, They've got 11 wins. There's a good chance they finish with 12 wins uh, and ranked firmly in the top 10. Uh, you know, this is probably one of the five or six best Oregon teams of all time. Uh, but this is probably what the second best Washington team of all time that were, you know, in deference to the 91 Huskies. Like, yeah. um, so it's just in, in some respects, it's just kind of, uh, bad luck that those two things happened to transpire at the same time for, for Oregon fans and, and for Washington fans that I think it just kind of speaks to the greatness of this current Washington team that, that, you know, you were able to dispatch of a really, a really, I think what is a really, really good Oregon team and to beat them twice in the same season is, is something. No doubt. I think most Oregon fans and a lot of Husky fans probably would have said, you know what, going 12 and 0 in the regular season of the Pac-12 was great, but if we lose to Oregon, it's going to feel like, you know, uh it just kind of went for nothing. And so the difference between 12 and 0 and 13 and 0 was pretty profound. As uh someone now who's watching the college football playoffs, if the Huskies you know, lose a close one to Texas. Um, how do you kind of rank this season, you know, for the Huskies as a, a you know, Pac-12 observer? And then if they do manage to win another game or two, you know, how do you kind of put that into a historical comp for the Pac-12? Well, so I'm 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 working up a list of like the greatest teams in Pac-12 history. It's one of the top ten lists that I haven't haven't gotten to yet. That I'm hoping. Mark's moments. 
yeah, hope, hoping to uh, publish here. And I've kind of been waiting now to see how this, you know, I probably won't publish it till January just because I got to see how this Husky season plays out to see yeah. where to pencil them in. So uh, to go positive first, if they end up 15 and 0 and become the first Pac-12 team to win with a four-team playoff, which is a different deal than the Pete Carroll USC team. Yeah. You know, undefeated. And it's a different deal than the Don James Washington team. I mean, those are the teams they're in the conversation with, right? Is the 91 Huskies and then the the Pete Carroll team with at USC with Reggie Bush and Matt Leinert that yeah. uh that went 13 and 0. Actually, what they went, I think they went 12 and 1, shared a national title, went 13 and 0, won the national title outright, then went 12 and 0 before losing in the national title game to Texas. So um, as far as like a three-year run, that's going to be pretty hard. Oh, yeah. To, uh, but in terms of a single season, like, if, I mean, if they go 15-0, and 0, then whether you put them one, two, and three in that list, like they, they wouldn't be as dominant in terms of margin of victory as that 91 Huskies team. And I'd have to like really go through and like see, you know, the rankings of the teams that that, that Husky team beat versus this Husky team. But I mean, they're in that conversation as like one of the best teams in conference history. Uh, I think if they, if they lose to Texas in a close game or if they make it to the title game and they lose, then they're still in like a conversation with the best Oregon teams of recent years. You know, the two Oregon teams that made it to the, the title game, they're in the conversation with like that, Arizona State team with Jake Plummer that went undefeated and lost in the last second of the Rose Bowl and almost mm. national title. So there's there's a handful of other teams that that got really close, had really special seasons and and came up one game short and they would be in that in that grouping which is still I think one of the top 10 teams in conference history. Uh so they're I mean they're they're there, you know, assuming they don't just kind of lay an egg to Texas and yeah. um get TCU'd yeah, yeah, which I don't I don't really think is going to happen. Um so they're yeah, they're on the short list right now of of the greatest greatest teams in conference history and and they've got the opportunity to add to that legacy. Yeah. Well, um let's go ahead and we'll wrap it up. We'll we'll come back in a couple of weeks. I'm going to be out next week uh heading into Christmas, but the Tuesday after Christmas, we should be able to uh, pick back up and that'll be good timing kind of heading into the bowl season. Uh, but any, you know, kind of final thoughts about your Oregon Ducks, you know, looking ahead to the bowl and just preparing for the transition into the Big Ten. What are your general sentiments about this Oregon team? I'm I'm not ready to go there with the transition into the Big Ten. My my heart is still mourning the loss of of the Pac-12. I think um, it's a bummer that this had to be the last Pac-12 title game because I could see this these programs with these two coaches playing for many more Pac-12 titles if you know mm. if things stayed the way they were. Um, so that's a bummer. But uh, yeah, I mean this season it's it's hard to not be distracted by the fact that they lost twice to the Huskies. Like it's hard for that, not to just be like a sincere bummer uh, 
for this season. And yet at the same time, like if they go 12 and two with, um, with two, three point losses to a historically great team, then that's, that's a really special season. And I think Bo Nix has taken his place among the all-time great Oregon quarterbacks. And he has one more game in an Oregon uniform. And so I look forward to, to cheering him on and, um, and I, I think the future is, is bright for Oregon. I think uh, there's, there's certainly enough signs of these, of these first two years in the Dan Lanning era for me to feel like there's an upward trajectory. And um, I know that you would point out that his record is virtually identical to Mario Cristobal's record in their first two seasons. But trust me when I say that this is not Mario Cristobal, like, this team does not lose to unranked opponents like Mario did. They don't lose every time they go on the road like Mario seemed to do for a while. They don't fall in like, you know, major holes and just don't show up for games. I mean, it's just yeah. it's night and day. So, uh so, so just just to clarify that, you know, since you brought it up, I was going to let it I was just going to let it slide, but to, <laughs> to bring that up, I just think this is interesting in Mario Cristobal's first two seasons. He went 21 and six with a conference championship and he was four and zero against his rivals in Lanning's first two seasons. He went 21 five with no championships and was one in four against his rivals. I hear what you're saying that Cristobal um, got caught multiple times in his first two seasons. And really kind of, that was his MO throughout his coaching tenure got caught multiple times you know, with his pants down, looking past certain opponents, not putting the best product out on the field. There's no doubt about it that Lanning um, has, you know, I think he's, I think Lanning is a world-class motivator and obviously he's an incredible recruiter and and all that kind of stuff. Um, But at the end of the day, are you more comfortable with a coach that um, you know plays great against the lesser opponents but loses against the rivals than a coach that beats the rivals but then has some maddening victory or maddening losses to lesser opponents? A hundred percent. Like if you think about Mario Cristobal's best year, his second year in Oregon, he goes twelve and two, uh, wins the Pac-12 wins the Rose Bowl. And if you look at like the highs from that season, he beat Washington on the road. He beat USC on the road. He crushed Utah in the Pac-12 title game. It was, that was a great Mario Cristobal season. And yet the two losses that they had with Justin Herbert as a senior quarterback for the Ducks, and they lost to two teams starting freshman quarterbacks. They lost their season opener to Auburn. Starting quarterback for Auburn that day was a young Bo Nix, who threw a last second touchdown pass to beat the Ducks. And then they lost to Arizona State starting freshman quarterback named Jaden Daniels, who just yeah. took home the Heisman Trophy. Now, losing to Bo Nix and Jaden Daniels in this particular season wouldn't be such a bad thing. But when right. they were both true freshmen yeah, and, and Oregon has a top five team and they're going on the road to an unranked Arizona State and falling behind 24 to seven in the fourth quarter with a senior quarterback and Justin Herbert, mm-hmm. like that is so much more maddening than this particular season of, like I said, losing by three points to a historically great Washington team. Mm -hmm. Like if, if, if what it takes in the future to beat 
the best teams that Dan Lanning has is like historically great teams with historically great quarterbacks on the other side. I'll, I'll take my chances with that because I would much rather sleep comfortably knowing that every team that we're supposed to beat, we're going to take care of those teams. Mario Cristobal lost Mm -hmm. six times to unranked opponents in four years. Uh, Dan Lanning is yet to lose to an unranked opponent. Uh, Mario Cristobal had, Several games, too many to count, where where they fell behind by three touchdowns at halftime and were never competitive in the second half. Mm. I can think of at least five of those games off the top of my head. Uh, That happened the first game of the Dan Lanning era to Georgia, and it hasn't happened since. So there's just, yeah, I could go on, Warren, but um, the the future is so much brighter under under Dan Lanning than than it ever was uh with Mario and yeah he's lost three times to Washington and as as long as that streak continues if that streak continues you're always going to rightfully have have bragging rights about that part of his tenure but I think I think there's a lot of other reasons to be uh pretty high on the direction that he's got things going I mean let's face it you know whether whether you're talking about Mario Cristobal, you know, 21 and six conference championship, uh, Rose Bowl win, you know, or 21 and five. Ultimately, like, uh, if you're just a like reasonable level headed college football fan, which I know that's kind of an oxymoron, but uh, you got to be pleased with any team that's basically going you know, 11 or 12 and two every year. I mean, that's, that that's upper echelon college football, no matter how you slice it. And consider this, that of those five losses for Lanning, three of them are to Washington in the midst of a 20 game winning streak. One of them was to Georgia in the midst of their own epic winning streak. Yeah. So, So, and then there's, and then there was the, the collapse against the Beavers, which was admittedly like the worst part of Lanning's tenure. I think the worst like right. half of his tenure. Uh, but like, that's the only team that they lost to that wasn't on like an epic winning streak, like a 20 plus game winning sure. streak. But again, it's like, yeah, if we're going to lose to the teams on the 20 plus game winning streaks and beat everybody else, I'll, I'll take that. Yeah. And you know, like we said, and it's been, it's come up many, many times is uh, Oregon like passes the eye test. You know, when you see them, in 90% of their games, you look and you go, wow, that is one of the best teams in the country. Um, so, you know, I, I would think that if if you're a college football fan, that's what you want is you want to have a team that everybody looks at and goes, wow, these guys are really, really good. And you're going to lose some games because every team loses games. Even, you know, Alabama and Georgia lose games from time uh, to time. So, um, but one team team that has not lost is the University of Washington, and they are the owners of the longest winning streak in college football in 20 games. If they can extend that streak to 21 and then to 22, they will, according to Mark Schmore, be one of the uh, greatest teams in the history of the Pac-12 as it closes its doors and uh, writes the final chapter. So I'm, I'm certainly cheering for that part of the movie to 
come out just the way it's supposed to. But uh, only time will tell. But we'll be back in a couple of weeks for bowl season. And uh, we'll have you, we'll keep you covered and, and certainly be breaking down everything that's happening with uh, Ducks recruiting and the portal and high school recruiting, uh, what the Huskies are able to pull together and uh, preparing for the Sugar Bowl and for the Fiesta Bowl. So with that, we'll wrap things up. For all my dog fans out there, go dogs. And for all my duck fans, go ducks. All right, guys, we'll catch you next time.